0: Good morning, good evening, and if you are one of our regular listeners that goes out for a run, cycle or walk whilst listening to us and you're living in the northern hemisphere, then I hope you're wrapped up well. It's a frosty morning here in London as we record this, and I think it's going to stay that way for a few days. Well, we're into the final week before Christmas Day or holiday period, and it's been a while since Robin Merton and I took some time out of talking to people around the world to have one of our occasional chats. But rather than lock ourselves away in a cupboard, a fireplace, a or a car for recording this time, we took the show on the road. Peter Killian and Simon Pink from QBE's innovation team had invited us in to talk to their colleagues, so we decided to combine our partner's talk with answering some of the questions that people really want to know about, all sourced from QBE. Well, you can see us in action in this short video on LinkedIn, and we'll put a link to that in the episode notes, but keep listening to find out what we think about the future of underwriting and whether algorithmic syndicates are a good idea. Data came up, of course, and standards and formats... Is there any hope of progress that we're going to go digital soon? Hmm. We'll listen to find out. And we cover climate, ESG, energy, parametric, and more. Well, we've really enjoyed this format. And many thanks to Peter for turning the tables, being our host, and firing off the questions to us both. She's quite harping on the other side of the microphone. And of course, to our engaged audience and nice questions too. Okay, here we go.
1: So, Robin, this one's for you. What and who is Instec?
2: Instec is a complete accident in the sense that my history was uh, as a broker and then as an uh, innovator myself. I found myself unemployed in 2012. I didn't know what to do. I didn't want to go back into corporate life. Um, so I created Instec as a club, basically, for innovators, for investors, for progressive people in insurance companies. And it was intended to be entirely social. And we would go down Corny and Barrow and I'd put somebody behind the bar and it surprisingly took off. And if you fast forward from there, we had 2,000 members by about 18 months after that. And in 2022, we're 16 people. We've got 170 corporate members. It has moved completely from being all about startups to being anybody who has anything that relates to the future of insurance and the future of technology. So there's a lot of S&Ps, NASDAQ, Salesforce, MasterCard in the gang these days. We don't just do events now. We do podcasts. We do intelligence. I think our focus is to help insurance companies understand what tech is doing, who's doing what, who's worth talking to, and to help tech companies understand insurance's issues, who's looking for what. If I summed it up in three words, I'd say we're a dating agency.
1: (laughs) And if you want to be part of that dating agency, go onto the website with your email address and you'll be able to access all those intelligence reports and go to the events uh, that Robin and Matthew host. Okay, we're going to now talk a bit about underwriting. And Matthew, we hear a lot about startups coming in to disrupt insurance. How do you think this disruption is going, and what is the future of the underwriter?
0: Yeah, I might reframe that slightly, Peter. We used to hear a lot about startups coming in to disrupt insurance. I think people realized that wasn't really the best way to start a conversation with an insurance company. Mm-hmm. So the good news is, for those of you have underwriting, or those of you who'd like to move into underwriting, is that the role of the underwriter is most definitely not dead, and will certainly survive my career in insurance or life. So what tends to have happened is that people have realized I think you can all relate to this if you think about other areas of your life. Using pure analytics and data to make decisions has got a lot of value. And Robin's going to be talking a bit more about that. But you've got to be very careful when you hand that over to the to the algorithm or to the AI. And sort of tend to ask people when they celebrate their AI, which is have you got a humble algorithm? doesn't know when it should say, I don't know, as opposed to just trying to give you an answer. So what we're seeing now is a lot more collaboration between the companies that are arriving or even those that have established in terms of what they're doing with data analytics and a lot more about how to make the underwriter's life easier as opposed to how to remove the underwriter from the process So try to help the underwriter do what they're good at and what they get paid for, such as making decisions, underwriting, finding new clients, offering capacity, not removing the underwriter from the process.
1: And so you just mentioned algorithms this year, Brit's algorithmic syndicate, Key, had more than doubled its income at the half-year reporting period, demonstrating that their algorithmic underwriting approach has gained some real traction in the market. Can you explain an algorithmic syndicate, and does automation take us away from the customer? If we had one, how would the customer know they are dealing with QBE?
2: I'll tell you that last question. last. A lot of your customers never know they're dealing with QBE. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> algorithmic doesn't change that. Look, I'm an unashamed fan of algorithmic underwriting, so excuse the sort of party political broadcast. If you look at where it's being used, you know, there's Key, I think is the shining example, there's Fave at Canopius, there's Rethink, which is also an MGA, at Howden, they lead the way. They're only concentrating on two areas, they're concentrating on follow-only and on what used to be delegated underwriting and is now, instead of doing that on monthly board row, you're doing it in real time. If you think about follow underwriting, they're not pricing. They're only profiling something that somebody else has priced, giving it attributes and checking against whether, historically, that leader in those classes of business with that type of price have made money. It's not the most sophisticated algorithm in the world, so to answer the question about are, we, are they moving us away from the customer, you never knew who the customer was, the delegated underwriting business in the first place. You were at least three, if not four parties from the end customer. I mean, I think underwriters right treat the broker as their customer, but with distribution costs running at the levels that they are, you know, I wonder whether you should be seeing the broker every time he brings you a follow piece of business, and I whether you should be seeing the broker every time he brings you a delegated underwriting. That was the point of underwriting in the first place. So Look, I just see it as a way in which you can scale using a combination of data science and algorithm and underwriters, and absolutely nobody is doing it all algorithmically. Everybody is doing it with a broker, and the business is a slightly more subtle one in the sense that it's not tech supporting the underwriter. It's a genuine union of underwriting, data science, and technology. They are very different businesses because they have a different culture. They're tech science underwriting business, not underwriting businesses with some tech.
1: And um, I think there's a bit of a concern about brokers gaming the system with that algorithmic approach. And you sort of touched on it, you know, having a humble um, algorithm, I think Matthew said. How do you stop brokers doing that, do you think?
2: Well, not if they are. I don't think they're doing it particularly well. But again, back to the beginning, how they're gaming it. Someone else has already set the price before it ever gets to Brit. Two things, I think. I think there will be a bunch of underwriters who were amazed in year one and year two that they were able to get something away at that price, and they would have joyfully gone away and gone. Key wrote something they never should have written. That would happen in ordinary life. It's not thing to do with algorithm necessarily. I mean, it says a lot about us as a sort of community that there's a quite a vocal majority, probably not minority, who just don't want the sort of Johnny come lately. I've done something really smart to work, you know, and the. The underlying sentiment is some form of negativity. Almost everybody who talks to us about it almost seems to do so in a way that they don't want it to work. And I think a lot of these sort of comments are driven by hope rather than actually genuinely a piece of analysis.
1: Mm. Okay, so Key's obviously building up a lot of data, and we talk a lot about data and data standards in the industry. Matthew, is anyone going to be able to achieve data standardization within the insurance market? How do you think we compare
0: and uh, and by when? This is another one of the ones I think is going to uh, not happen by the time I've retired. I guess there's two parts to this. So there's data standardization so that it becomes easier to bring data into systems in a very clean kind of way, meaning you don't have to manipulate it too much. And then there's just the digitization of data itself. You know, there's ridiculous things happening just now where PDFs are being sent around that at one point would electronic data, were then put onto a paper form somewhere, would then scanned to write a PDF, and then someone has to go and extract the data. That's just, that stuff should have been fixed 10 years ago. I'd say the glimmer of hope is in ESG. We're going to talk a bit more about that. But where people now are starting to identify what individual companies are doing to reduce carbon emissions or how they're measuring their reduction towards carbon emissions. I'm hoping that's going to see some standardization of data. We haven't seen it very much in delegated underwriting. We saw it on catastrophe modeling 20 years ago because there were two major modelers. And so almost just by chance, UK ended up with standardization of data. I think the problem is fundamentally that the motivations aren't there. Like a lot of anything often to do with innovation, there's two drivers of what makes people change. One is regulation. As much as we don't like it, regulation makes people change. One is like, stuff happens, you know, bad stuff happens. So, a big earthquake happens, a big hurricane happens, a pandemic happens, and then people realise they've got to change. But without that motivations, at the moment, you know, the market can continue to get away with the way it's been doing things for years. And so, uh, unfortunately, I've given up trying to put a date, Peter, on when I think standardisation will happen in some lines of business, but I don't think it's going to happen everywhere.
1: So data is important, as we just touched on, you know, we could benefit by sharing with our partners data, but clearly, there could be an element of undermining competitive advantage. Do you have examples of insurers sharing data that hasn't undermined that competitive advantage?
0: There are a couple of areas that come to mind. So in the areas of fraud, initiatives like Q for motor insurance, they've been sharing data for a long time to track people that are repeat fraudsters. In Europe, there's an organization called Perils that basically collects lost data after an event and shares that. It gets harder, as you said, competitively. What happened sort of 20 years ago when insurance companies didn't have high processing power, the word data scientist probably hadn't even been invented, is that people building tools and analytics were actually able to provide a service to insurance companies to analyze the data, and that would go back in, and I'm thinking specifically around catastrophe models, but you can apply it across lots of different pricing models. That could then go back into tools, create more efficient tools. What's happening now is it's it's become a strategic advantage to be able to do that analysis. And so, yeah, Lloyd's has tried this kind of initiative Certainly, many companies that are building tools and analytics would love to have your data. The question is, you know, what do you get in return for that now? Because you know, the risk, of course, is that the, your data will go off and inform your competitors. So I guess my answer to your question is, I would say work selectively with some individual companies. There's very few areas in, in reality that the market is going to really be able to share data unless you know, the market is growing so much or there's a really big risk. So maybe, maybe our hope, again, is around climate carbon emissions there'll be some sharing of data in that yeah
1: it was really interesting in your recent instick podcast and property intelligence report that a third of address data from brokers is missing something critical what activities are you seeing the marketplace from carriers brokers and insurtechs to create drivers to improve this data
0: well, Peter, I'm really pleased you've not only read our report, but you listened to the podcast. <laughs> and I always love it when people quote things back to me. So thank you for that, if nothing else. What's going on there? Well, I think many of you in the room will, will, will know the issues here, that data is either missing because, for various reasons, it was badly keyed in in the first place. Sometimes it's convenient not to put the data in there. If you've got a property very close to a floodplain, or if it's in the US and it's close to the East Coast, you might choose to put it in at county level, not address level. There are some interesting initiatives, though, so companies that are going right back upstream to the original companies themselves that are, as Ron mentioned, we very rarely talk about the real client in insurance. But if you go back to something like Prologis as an example who build the Amazon warehouses, there's an organization called Archipelago that is actually working with Prologis and working with some other real investment trusts or owners to actually help the risk managers identify their own data and then use that in the insurance transaction. And what's interesting about that is, I think many people will be aware, large corporations are actually looking at how they can retain more of their risk. To be able to retain their risk, they need to understand their own exposures. So there's a motivation on their part to go and understand their exposures. I guess the question ultimately still is, are they going to, A, want to share that more broadly, and B, are they able to? Because we back to our previous point, if that all ends up in some PDF somewhere, then, you know, good luck trying to extract that easily.
1: Mm. Okay, so we're still talking about data, And Robin, who do you think is getting data aggregation right? And are the brokers, carriers, and their ecosystems ready to work with data aggregators and trust their data?
2: No, Let's go back one, which is what do we mean by data aggregation? The first is what we call supermarkets. In other words, companies that are bringing together lots of different sources of data and you deal with them and they will give you 20, 30, 40, 50 different original data sources aggregated in one way. And then I think there are another kind of company which is connectors effectively which is you know you go and connect with them and they'll connect you to some data sources my um belief is that for 2023 and beyond that is the hottest topic in town and everybody else operates as now a connected world you you had a physical ecosystem and people would come and go into this building now that's much more of a digital ecosystem and what drives that digital ecosystem is lots of different partners lots of different providers and lots of different data sources. And the next big game is to work out how you pull those together. The investors are almost right now more interested in that than anything else, because the value of it is just incredibly obvious. And I think it needs to be done at a certain scale. And I think it represents really interesting space. Having said all that, it's early days. I mean, there are just supermarkets, when fresh, plenty of others like that. But that sort of connector space is still very, very nascent.
1: You've been in the market for a while. What are the major integration challenges to overcome and how can we future proof our solutions?
2: Well, we could do all day on that, uh, really. I mean the biggest challenge is that you all sit on legacy tech that was invented and delivered way before anybody understood that we were gonna live in a digital world. So if the world's going to connect up and you're going to want to connect a lot of people to your systems, frankly, you can't connect them to your core admin system because it's not suitable for that. A whole new array of admin systems is growing up that were designed specifically to cure this problem, but they will operate in the retail space. So there, there isn't really anybody right now who you can go to immediately, who provides all the functionality that you need in a London market or specialty uh, insurer and has that kind of connectivity capability. I think the way it gets solved is is there will be, to my point earlier, a layer a middleware layers put over the top with people who you don't have to junk your admin system, you will create a different set of providers who connect you with the world and then connect you with your admin systems. Sorry, shameless plug here. But we've just, we've just written a report which comes out on the 8th uh, of December. And, and it's along those lines. It says admin systems are going to become ecosystems. And, and, and how do you make them that way? What choices do you need to make? What strategies do you need? And so on.
1: We're going to talk a little bit now about product development. And Matthew, for those not familiar with parametric insurance, can you talk about what it is, how big it is, and what's working in that space?
0: Just to quick calibrate my answer, if you could raise your hand if you don't know what parametric insurance is in the room. Okay, <laughs> good. So that was about one third of the audience. So I'll just give you a very brief overview, and then we'll talk a little bit about what's happening in that area. So the simple way to think about parametric insurance is... The difference between what happens in traditional insurance where the payment is based around the loss, in parametric insurance, the payment is triggered around an index. And that index may be something like wind speed, or it could be something like the amount of payments that have been made in in the city of London, or it could be even as sort of unusual as how many people have been shot in Dallas, which is actually one active shooter program that's out there there's more and more interest i've used my words carefully there's more and more interest around this there's probably about 100 companies now offering parametric solutions in different ways the concept has been around for about 30 years with catastrophe bonds where people were creating gates for hurricane the the advantage is that it means that people that don't necessarily understand insurance so well or don't know about the client have got a much more straightforward way of assessing what the risk is because they essentially just need to understand what is the risk of a windstorm happening or what is the risk of a pandemic happening. There are a couple of companies that are doing very well on this who are offering solutions to large corporate organizations such as Descartes, probably one of the best-known ones. One of the challenges is that for companies doing this is to get distribution. So who actually wants to buy this in terms of the consumers? The less people who are going to buy it have to know that it's parametric versus traditional insurance, the better because it can kind of confuse them. One example of where it is working, and I think this is a good way of thinking about why these work is a solution that is offered by axa climate for auto dealers or car dealers in the u.s for hail and they use a company called helios to provide sensors about the size of a piece of paper they will measure when a hailstorm lands and so the hailstorms bigger than about the size of a golf ball then and it, obviously in the vicinity of where that auto dealer is there'll be a payout So it's very clean in the sense that you've got the hellstorm, you've got the sensor, you've got the auto dealer nearby. It's quite difficult to buy insurance for that. So we've got a couple of reports on that. We do a a newsletter every two weeks on everything that's happening in parametric. We're fortunate enough to be supported by about 80% of the parametric providers in there. So we know a lot of people who can put all the pieces together as well. Because if QBE is thinking about doing this, there are different components. You need the people who can help you calibrate the, the loss potential. You need people that can... Put it in a structure so it actually pays out without any legal issues in there uh, and a way that actually of communicating it to your clients and of course yeah, very importantly how do you actually distribute it to those clients
1: robin what is happening to insurtechs uh, is the market saturated with insurtech capability are there too many and do you think we may see readjustment into 2023
2: matthews was very wary about the term insurtech because I think it's normally attributed to startups. And I, I pick up on Maxi's comments earlier. The era of what I call bedsit businesses has gone. So there used to be lots of people who turned up at in stake events and they'd had a degree in data science at Imperial and they told you how insurance is going to work in the future and, and having no understanding whatsoever of regulation or capital management or anything else. I mean, that, that era is well and truly over. The truth is, I think, that insurance the incumbent insurance market is not very good at innovating, if we're honest about it to ourselves. And nearly all the best ideas that have come into insurance in the last 10 years have come from outside the industry. So cultivating the partnership between these smart people who come with these ideas, but without generally without insurance knowledge, because they're very, very rarely started by people from the insurance industry. Really extraordinary how rare that is to create insurance-knowledgeable, insurance-relevant businesses with the expertise that these companies bring. That, that is the future, and that's why it's much less about startups now, because the technology that's going to do that is likely to be owned by Salesforce or MasterCard or S&P, as it is by some kid from Imperial. So, you know, the, the whole sort of future of insurance not insure tech, the technology that will die of the future of insurance is now just a kind of never-ending partnership between either big or small technology companies and insurance companies giving them the knowledge that they need in order to build relevant technology. That space of being the interpreter between tech and in, and, and insurance is, is very interesting and become very relevant space, which is why we do what we do, because we can serve both parties' interests in quite a good way, and we try and speak tech to insurers in a way that they understand it, we try and talk tech to tech people in the way that they understand it.
1: Yeah, it's definitely true just from QBE Ventures' perspective, where our portfolio companies find a lot of value in us translating what we do here. And then when they come in and speak to underwriters, understanding what underwriters want to hear about their product and how to discuss the product not in scientific terms but in insurance terms because yeah a lot of the people who run the companies are very very smart and might have data science backgrounds etc but yeah it's that translating into an insurance product that makes sense for something that we can talk to our clients about or brokers about
2: and never walk into an insurer and say let me tell you how your business works i'm gonna i have a fundamentally better way to do your business than you do because that never works <laughs>
1: So, Robin, what have you seen with insurers investing as corporate VCs, clearly ventures as a VC? How do you think that compares to the you know, last few years?
2: If you look at the whole seven or eight years of InsurTech, there was a lot of excitement. A lot of people came into InsurTech. It was spun off the back of fintech. Lots of money was wasted, not particularly knowledgeably. You know, there was a spike in 2021 20, when lots of businesses were overvalued, huge amounts of money by rather naive investors changed hands. If you read all the press, you'd think that 2022 was a sort of year of doom and gloom. But but I don't buy that. I think that if you were overvalued in 20 and 21, then you've got a down run coming and have a problem to face down. But the return of corporate venture capital has created a fundamentally more dynamic and exciting market for early stage businesses. The progressive element is on the search for new products. And the way to bring new products to market is to, as we said earlier, bring smart people with smart product ideas, put them in front of underwriters, understand the data requirements. And most of the corporate venture money is going into investing in MGAs that you're going to provide your capacity to because it gives you two bites of the cherry as both an investment and a chance to make money on the underwriting and a chance to influence that company and you get in then to what i call co-innovation you're innovating with them together at that point rather than them innovating for you that's what's corporate venture will change and also the rest of the corporate venture money is going into operational efficiency type things. Nobody knows what their operational efficiency challenges are more than, ins- than an insurance company does. So, so the ability to work in partnership so that that technology can solve that problem, that really has changed the game. If I were to look at 2022 20, and twenty three, and look at the top five most influential trends, the return uh, of active corporate venture capital is one of the biggest trends and one of the most exciting trends.
0: I just want to come back to one point Rob made earlier about the early days of Instec and some of the people that would turn up. And I do slightly miss this. And I came across Robin about five years ago doing this. I think it was about the time there was somebody on stage. And this is wrong for so many reasons, but it was just quite fun. And he started a business that was basically going to be selling clothing items that had kind of come to the end of their, their line and they were maybe a year or two old. And his great idea that he could give a discount to people who had a size one lower when they ordered again from when they'd ordered the first time, on the basis they'd been keeping themselves very healthy and fit. And he was looking for an insurance backer for his, uh, his health application. I don't know where he's gone now. I'm, I can, One thing is certain, he will not be offering any kind of health insurance in the back of that. But there is something quite refreshing about people that come in. So I guess I would say still quite, we still like people to come on stage and, and share their enthusiasm, and maybe we direct them to something they should be doing differently. But uh, hey, great, great to get up there.
1: Matthew, you mentioned ESG a bit earlier um, in our conversation and you recently ran an Instech ESG event. This is a big growth area, but the approach within existing lines of business is disjointed. What trends and capabilities are you seeing emerge to support our customers as they are wrestling with everything from education and understanding through to actionable insight and reporting on their ESG impact?
0: Think about ESG and the move towards reduction of carbon. Too often it can be seen of as being a problem, and obviously there are some big challenges out there. But I guess the sort of light of hope for insurance organizations is, yes, of course people have to report on this. There's a lot of work to be done. But there's also areas that insurers can provide a lot of value. And as people are coming off things like coal and fossil fuels, insuring those, there's a whole new area of assets that need to be insured as you transition. You know, wind farms are one of the ones that people can... Relate to. So, there's a couple of themes in the, in the event we ran that came out pretty strongly. So, one is first of all, there are a lot of organizations now that are claiming to offer data to help measure carbon emissions. People are uh, putting ideas together, getting some investment. Uh, only a small percentage of those are actually going to succeed. So, sort of buyer beware, I'd say there are some big organizations doing this quite well. And the challenge for any company is once you start measuring this once, the following year, you've got to keep measuring it. And if you start changing measurement provider, then people start to ask why you've changed. So I think we're going to see a pretty fast consolidation and a flight to quality of what is being measured. I mean, the big challenge for insurers is what's called scope three emissions, which is what are your clients emitting and how do you measure that? There's all sorts of challenges in just how do you measure it? Are you double counting it? There's lots of opportunities around that. But I think on the flip side, there are also going to be opportunities. And this also plays back to your point about companies coming in, some creative companies. One of the ones that Lloyd is looking at now is how should an underwriter price a pipeline that is transmitting liquid hydrogen? That hasn't been a big application in the past. As you move towards renewables, that's going to be a big application and it's very different pricing a liquid hydrogen pipeline than it is doing a more traditional liquid gas. So I think, yeah, to leave on a sort of a high note, amongst all the challenges and costs, to report on this, it is a a chance for insurance companies to actually show leadership in terms of what they're prepared to offer and actually helping with that transition.
1: Talking about kind of traditional energy, which is a reference like different pricing for existing products, how um, do you think insurtech companies have responded to market fluctuations in the price for oil and energy? And how has this affected their forecasts?
2: Two ways. One, there's a really good startup, which we really like, called Chai chai has got a big seed of small h ai they are very effective predictors of the future of commodity prices so big companies use them to predict the future of the price of i mean strange things cardboard amongst others but they have been for the last six months trying to convert that into an mga and then into a product to be able to sell that at a retail level when i say retail you don't have to be a hedge fund to buy a hedge effectively um, but they've just got a lot of investment. I mean, in the future, I think it'll be easier to buy protection for these things if you're not a huge company. But at a, at a macro level, it hasn't affected the tech industry at all. I mean, insurance is always counter-cyclical. When interest rates go up and the pound plummets, insurers all start rubbing their hands together, particularly those who live in London, because this is exactly how we all make money. And in a way, that feeds back to the innovation agenda, because... Everyone shrugs their shoulders and go, why should we spend, save 10% of our oper- operational costs by digital transformation when we've just made 10% on the pound-dollar sterling exchange rate? So we'll back off and we'll do it again another year.
1: We can now open up to the audience for questions.
2: Good morning. A lot of press coverage
0: about cyber liabilities, cyber liability insurance, Beasley dominating the market, growing crazy new products out there. Can you tell us, share a bit of your insights into that market as it seems to be getting a lot of attention and focus by everyone in the industry at the moment? If you're looking at a traditional property type risk, then you can manage your concentration. The challenge people have underwriting cyber is that you could get a loss that can go across geography and line of business. And there's a potential there for a very high correlation. And I always caution when I say this, we haven't had any true catastrophe cyber losses. Most of the cyber losses we've seen have actually only affected a selected number of companies. Companies that are doing this well are those that understand how to manage their accumulations. I will call out CyberCube that has sort of followed what happened in catastrophe modelling, building tools to help people analyse the risk and importantly understand the uncertainties. A A big question for anybody looking at working with partners who are providing analytics and tools and data for underwriting is You want to get visibility into what they don't know and get transparency on those uncertainties. There's a lot of more demand for cyber than there is people willing to take capacity, particularly on individual lines, to manage that aggregation risk. So I think the temptation is going to be, particularly as the prices go up and the sort of more climate-related catastrophes, the risk is seen to be higher and higher, people moving into that space who may not have the expertise to do it. So... One of the things that we've discussed in this is data collection. As an insurance company, how can we help, say, SME clients with their data? And obviously there's challenges that are presented in that they may not have the capabilities to provide the data that we require, especially, especially when we get to ESG. So h- how can we help as a sort of insurance company as sort of the person asking for the, for the numbers?
2: I think there are two different answers. The first is, it's a massively under-addressed area across the board. There's a really, really interesting startup that we like called Aurora, who I think is the first for a while that I've seen it do it right, A-U-R-O-R-A. They're very broker-driven right now, but uh, the way they overcome the issues that you face is, is by extensive use of third-party data sources. So they're, they're in that business of asking you to only provide yourself A limited amount of data, what you do, how many employees, and they will go and find the remaining data they need for underwriting from third party sources. If you go down the route of um, trying to enforce SMEs to provide you with more data in a more structured way, then you lose them. And and more than anything else, you lose the broker, because the broker, by their nature, aren't necessarily, probably need to cut this bit, (laughs) but... What you want is high quality data, and and I think you either you get better quality data if you go direct. The more you depend on the broker for that, the more complicated it gets. Uh, thank you, Robin Matthew. So I'm the broker at the moment. I just had a quick question on the key which you mentioned the early part of the
1: podcast which we are doing today, and it's more like uh, trying to understand: is it the strategy is to kind of collect as much data while pricing? Separately to check whether the pricing is accurate or not from the AI side, or through more like algorithm side, and then try to compare how confidence is increasing and slowly moving into like a more leader in certain lines. Is it? Is that something they do?
2: It's not a. It's not a big move from an old-fashioned pricing model to building an algorithm. And the difference between the algorithm is in most cases they're self-learning, so they they self-improve over time. And the second thing is that it's you can scale in a fundamentally different way. Key is looking to do a billion dollars worth of premium in 2023 off three underwriters, a lot more employees. But in terms of the amount of business that each underwriter can write has suddenly been transformed by the fact that there's an element of triage in which stuff is going through the algorithm that they're perfectly comfortable with. And then every now and again, there's something that the underwriter needs to look at because it really leaves that right. But the other thing that they do, which is transformational is that they're able to do real-time portfolio analysis. So if you're getting too much of one class and not enough of the other class, then you can subtly change prices to get your balance for your portfolio, right? You know, and you can run real-time exposure. You can run real-time aggregation management. This is all transformational in the sense that you're running a real-time business. I mean, ultimately, they'll become better at pricing. But, but I think it's about scale and about running a real-time business and not a once-a-month or once-a-year business.
1: Thank you both so much for joining us today. It's been brilliant hearing your insights. As I mentioned earlier, we're INSTEC members. Final thing, how can the audience and QBE get more out of our Instech membership?
0: No, thanks, Peter, for having us. It's very nice to be on the other end of the questions. It's quite hard, actually, answering questions from somebody else. So, as Peter said, you, QBE is a member of Instech, and uh, many thanks to James Orchard, who supported that. We are doing, you may have sort of heard from what we're talking about, events we do monthly events we do early careers events for people earlier in their careers we have a reports that go out every four or five weeks we have some very focused newsletter around crime climate parametric and then a general update we also have profiles in individual companies and the other one i should mention so for those of you that are interested in a particular area we have a database of 700 companies that we're tracking and as part of your membership we can provide you with a review of the companies we know in your area and give you some indication. You'll know some of those. You might not know some other ones. It's quite a good way to learn what's out there. I would encourage you just to share the, the details with your colleagues. It's actually very simple. It's instec.co's website. If you go on there, you can log in with your own email address. And then please do give the events a go. Bring a friend along if you want to. Don't quote me on this directly. But if you turn up after half an hour, you find you don't really want to be there, you can leave. We break up the on stage talking with mingling in the audience. And it's just, they're just fun events. They start at half past four. Uh, It's a very friendly group. They're very keen on making introductions to each other. And we've got a range of people at all
2: stages in their career and uh, four different backgrounds. So please do come along, give it a try. Now that we have money, it's a lot better than it was back in the day when I was putting my money behind the bar.
1: Brilliant. Thanks, everyone, very much for joining today.
0: Well, we're going to be hearing more from QBE and what they're looking at in innovation quite soon. And I'm looking forward to that. Now, QBE is one of over 40 insurance companies we're helping just now to identify their business partners and solutions providers. And if you're struggling with finding out what's going on in the world, or you've got a great solution, but you're not managing to tell the world about it, then now's the time to contact us. Matthew Grant or LinkedIn or any of us, hello at instec.go to find out what we're offering with corporate membership. Go on, just do it. That's it. We're done.